Thank you for listening to the Proclaim Church Sermon Podcast. Proclaim's mission is to make Jesus known through gospel-centered worship, community, and mission. For regular meeting times, more information about our beliefs, or other information, check us out at proclaimkc.org. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 1-12 through 12. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. and The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteousness or the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. I'd like to start uh, this morning with some prayer, and I'd like to pray from Psalm 42. Sometimes I find it um, helpful for myself, when, especially when I'm not quite sure what to pray or how to pray, to go to the Psalms and to just use the Psalm as a launching off point for, for whatever it is that God uh, has placed on my heart or whatever it is that I'm praying about. And so I'd like to do that this morning. With Psalm 42. So if you'd pray with me. Lord God, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Lord, we, we thirst for you, for you, the living God, even though oftentimes we don't even know that that is the thing that we are desiring, that, that we are seeking to satisfy us. It's you. It's always been you. It's always will, it always will be you. Lord, we live in difficult times. We are going through difficult things. Each person here has their own list of concerns and troubles. Lord, our tears have been our food day and night. And as we 
suffer through whatever it is that we carry into here, we, it's almost like we can hear people asking, where is your God? Where is your God in that? But Lord, we remember and we pour out our soul. We remember who you are together this morning. We praise you for who you are and what you've done. Lord, we often feel the weight of the things that are going on and we are often downcast deep in our souls. We feel turmoil in in our hearts, but God, our hope is in you. Lord, would you remind us that our hope is in you, that, that that we would praise you, that our salvation has come from you and that our salvation will come from you, God. Lord, would we remember the things that you have done, the ways that you have worked in our lives, the ways that you have moved mountains, the ways that you have cleared uh, paths through, through impassable seas, God, the ways that you have worked in our life, your steadfast love, God, I pray that we would remember it in, in the darkest of our moments and in the, in the most difficult, that we remember it this morning as we struggle through lots of things going on in our world and in our country and, and um, as we try to process how we are to respond and how we are to react to those things. God, I pray that you would be our rock. We would recognize that you have not forgotten us. That even in our oppression, even in our difficulty, you have not left us. Even when someone says, where is our God, our hope is in you. We shall praise you again because you're the God of our salvation. You are our God. I thank you and I pray all this in your name. Amen. There are things uh, that your parents did that if you're a parent, if you're here and you're a parent, um, maybe, maybe even if you're not a parent, that you find yourself doing as well, Right? Some of them are bad things that you've repeated. Some of them are good things. Some of them are just silly things. One of the silly things my dad used to do that I find myself repeating is when we're watching a movie, a movie that we've seen before, a movie that my kids have seen before, uh, at that you know, intense moment, as the, at that suspenseful part of the movie, I will act like, there's a possibility that this movie might end differently this time than the last time we watched it. I'll say something like, oh no, Josie, do you think he'll live this time? Or, Ryder, what, what if they lose? What if they lose? I mean, that last time they won, but what if they lose this time we watched the movie? And my kids, they roll their eyes. They kind of know the bit right now and they kind of play along. In fact, Recently, Josie wanted to watch a movie by, by herself. Like She said, oh, can I watch this movie? Great. So she went and watched it and, and she was walking by and, and, and I said, oh, Josie, are you done watching the movie? And her response was yes. And it ended the same this time as it did last time. I, I didn't even get the chance to ask the question. She just responded right away because she knew it was coming. And indeed it was coming. That had been my intent the whole time. But knowing the end changes your perspective emotionally in the middle, right? When you've seen the movie already, 
Emotionally, you respond differently to that movie the second and the third and the 10th time you've seen it. Knowing the end changes your perspective. And knowing the end should change our perspective and our understanding of today in real life as well. You see, last week we started our series on 2 Thessalonians and we started by recapping all of 1 Thessalonians. And the reason that we did that is because Paul's second letter to the church there was a quick, it was a quick, uh, it was written shortly after the first letter. It was a quick response after his first letter to clarify and to build on points that Paul had made in that first letter. So there's a tight relationship between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And you're gonna see that as, as we go through it. The church there in Thessalonica is this young but vibrant church in the faith. They've embraced the gospel, even though they're being persecuted harshly. And Paul's intention in his second letter to them is twofold. First, his intention is to comfort and encourage them in their persecution. Second, his intention is to challenge and correct some faulty thinking that they're having that's a result of the intense persecution that they're experiencing and the short period of time that Paul had to really walk them through all of what scripture says. So overall, Paul's point here is that what you understand to be true about Christ's return and what happens in the end, it greatly impacts both how you feel about your current circumstances, whatever your circumstances are in this moment, but it also affects what you understand to be true about how you should live today. What happens in the end, it should affect how you feel about your circumstances, but it also should affect how you live today. The return of the king King Jesus changes our perspective and it should change our emotions and it should change our thoughts and it should change our actions and our behaviors. We've wrapped up the whole book or the way that I wrapped up this whole letter is in this one sentence. The destination shapes the journey. When you know what your destination is, it shapes how you get there. Not only the path you take, but the way in which you take it, the attitude in which you take it. Most of the time, most of us are so wrapped up in our day-to-day lives that we aren't thinking about Christ's return. I, I would imagine that most of you, that every day Jesus's return isn't part of the things that you really stop and think about and meditate on that particular day. However, I don't think we can rightly live as Christians in our day-to-day life without a right perspective on Jesus's ultimate victory. So Paul starts his letter wanting to encourage and comfort these suffering Thessalonians with this truth. And I wanna show you how remembering Christ's return will lead to three shifts in our perspective for suffering Christians and really three shifts in our perspective for all Christians, whether we're suffering in the particular moment we're in or not. See, Paul tips his hand in these first 
two verses in this introduction. A lot of times we breeze over the introduction of a letter, but Paul actually tips his hand in this greeting. He says something very similar to what he said in 1 Thessalonians, except he adds a little phrase. He says, from our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a little different than the first letter. See, I believe he's first of all reminding the Christians there in Thessalonica that God isn't just the sovereign creator, but that he's also a loving father who cares deeply about them. Even though they're in the midst of suffering, you have a father who cares deeply about you. And then second and perhaps most vivid is this Title for Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to keep your eyes open for that because that phrase or that title for Jesus, it occurs 24 times in these two short letters of First and Second Thessalonians. And it occurs 11 times in Second Thessalonians alone. And it occurs seven times, sometimes. The title Lord for Jesus occurs seven times just in this first chapter alone. Seven times he repeats it. I think Paul's trying to make a point here. Paul's trying to center their attention about Jesus on the fact that Jesus is Lord. He reigns, he's in charge, he's king, and the king will return, and that return should change our perspective. I think we see three particular ways in this text. The first we can see in verses three through five. And it reveals a shift in gratitude. Paul's shifting their attention, their perspective, and saying gratitude is for the lasting, not the temporary. Gratitude is for the lasting, what lasts, and not the temporary. See, I have a bad tendency in my life. I don't know if you guys if anyone can relate to this, but I have a bad tendency in my life to always see the gap in things rather than the gain. Do you, do you get what I mean? I always see what's lacking that I wish had happened or that I wish was there rather than seeing what is there that might not have been or wasn't before. Paul keeps us in right perspective. In verse three, he says, we ought to give thanks. We ought to give thanks to God for them and that it's right, it is right to do so, he says. Can you imagine these Thessalonians who are suffering day to day and they get this letter from Paul and Paul says, no, it's right to be grateful. It's right to give thanks. We ought to give thanks for you, Thessalonians. They're thinking, What's there to give thanks for? We suffer every single day for being Christians. Paul's going to give them some perspective here. These Christians who are surrounded by people who hate them, who are treating them accordingly to that hatred, they continue to have love for one another, it says. Listen, I don't know about you, but when people are treating me poorly, I tend to treat people around me poorly as well, right? Not even, not even merely those who are treating me poorly, like re- reciprocating that hatred or reciprocating that hurt, but it actually spreads to other people. 
A lot of times it's the people who are closest to me, the people who didn't even do anything wrong to me that get the brunt of that, right? Listen, you've ever had a bad day at work? People treated you really poorly? Maybe you work in some sort of customer service or with customers and the customers come in and, they, and they're just jerks sometimes, right? Like they don't have any idea who you are, but man, they're taking it out on you. And then you get home after a day of dealing with that and you're just like, you just wanna be mean to someone. And it's your family who's right there. And so they get it. And they're like, I didn't come into your place of business and treat you poorly. Why are you doing this to me, right? You see, the saying goes, hurt people, hurt people. And there's so much truth to it. Hurt people, hurt people. But not so for believers. It should not be so for us as Christians. God changes that. God changes it to forgiven people, forgive people. God changes it to loved people, love people, right? That's the power of the gospel, despite the handicaps that are in the way for the Thessalonians. Paul says, no, your love for one another is, is growing. It's, it's abundant. It's amazing. Your faith is growing and it's increasing. And he's thankful for that. Second, he boasts about them because of the steadfastness of their faith. Again, typically we see opposition as only negative, right? Bad things happen and we see that as just pure, purely negative, but in contrast to opposition, faithful obedience to Christ, can he be even more clear to us and to others? Friends, it's, it's the explosive growth of Christianity in places like China and India where Christians are being persecuted every day, or are being uh, imprisoned and killed, that, that, that we look at that and we go, God is so amazing. God is so amazing that he can do that in a place where these Christians are suffering so much. It's seeing a Christian friend be obedient to Christ, even when we know that it's costing them something, right? This is your Christian friend who in their workplace, they, they choose to do what Christ would have them to do, even though they, that you know it costs their bottom line. And we're amazed by that. We're encouraged by that. We're thankful for that, right? As long as it's in someone else's life and we don't have to do that. You see, stars shine brightest when the sky is darkest. I love what Paul says in Philippians 2. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you, you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Paul is saying that when we do things without grumbling and complaining in the midst of, of, a, of, of a world that is messed up, that it's actually in contrast to that world that we shine the brightest, that Christ shines the brightest. And this is what the Thessalonians are living out. And so Paul is thankful. He has gratitude. I'm sure that Paul would have been grateful if the persecution had ceased for this church, or even for himself, because he is experiencing persecution as well. But gratitude for temporary relief, it pales in comparison to his gratitude for lasting faith 
And that faith is shown in the way that we love one another. You see, I think the problem for us day to day isn't that we overblow the problems of our life. It's not that we see the problems of our life as bigger than they really are. I mean, I know many of you, I know your story, and I know that you deal with very significant problems on a day-to-day basis. Problem, I think, more often, is that our joy and our satisfaction come too much from the stuff of this world and not from Jesus. I think that's most often our problem. You see, Paul and these Thessalonians were so satisfied in Christ that the persecution couldn't change that. Their satisfaction in Christ and what he has done for them and who he is and just purely purely for him and knowing him and being in a relationship with him and just how glorious God is that he would come to the earth and that he would die for them, that he would save them, that they could have a relationship with him. Their satisfaction and their joy is so deep in that, that there's nothing that's happening around them that can break that. Do you have that kind of joy and satisfaction in the Lord? That's what God is calling us to. That's what God wants for you is that you'd be so satisfied in him. So satisfied in him. And this persecution is evidence of God's coming judgment, Paul says. That they'll be on the right side of that coming judgment. In verse five, it says, uh, when King Jesus returns, they will be considered worthy of the kingdom because of the way that they've suffered. And I've heard people say, friends, that we shouldn't swim against the the cultural current as Christians because we wanna be on the right side of history, the phrase goes. But Jesus's return should shift our perspective. The Bible tells us suffering for being a Christian, suffering for holding fast to God's word, suffering for seeking to be like Christ when other people are not like Christ, that that's a sign that, you're, that you are on the right side of history. Because if you're looking at history, anything short of with an eternal perspective, then you're not truly looking at all of history. The only right side of history is Christ's side when he returns. And so anything eternal, even in the midst of suffering, is reason for gratitude. And so we come to verses six through 10. It's the heart of the passage, the foundation from which Paul can have this gratitude is found in these verses. And there's a perspective change that Paul is trying to give us, I think, that's so critical for the suffering Christian, and it's a shift in our confidence. What are we confident in? What, what, what do we trust in? Particularly here, it's confidence in Christ's justice and not our own sense of justice. In the first few verses, if the first few verses are about responding more positively in the present because of eternity, then these are about not reacting so negatively in the present 
because of eternity as well. Verse six starts with, since indeed, since indeed we can be confident that God's judgments are right, since indeed he says he will do two things. One in verse six and one, Paul says in verse seven, first in verse six, he says that, he, that Christ will repay. Paul is confident that wrongs will be repaid perfectly by Christ when he returns. Second, in verse seven, he says that he'll grant relief. So he'll repay these wrongs, but also Christ will grant relief. Paul is confident that relief, the relief that that Christians will get will be better than the suffering is bad. Do you get that? What Paul is saying is the relief that you will get, Christian, when you are with Christ, when he returns, is better than any suffering that you are experiencing in this life is bad. Do you believe that? Do you have confidence in that? Let's look at what Paul says more closely. On the face, listen, on the face, we love the idea that wrongs will be repaid perfectly, right? Like on the face, when you just say that on paper, we go, yeah, yeah, I want wrongs to be repaid perfectly. That's good, I like that. I like that idea. But closer examination reveals that this first element of God's justice is actually a harder pill for us to swallow oftentimes. You see, because 7b, it says that when the Lord is, Jesus is revealed from heaven or when he comes again, that he will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance, it says. Now, vengeance is typically uh, an idea or a concept that ha- carries negative connotations, Right? Generally, when we talk about vengeance, we're talking about something that's, that's bad. And I think the reason that we're generally talking about, or we generally talk about vengeance that way is because we as humans lack the ability to be even handed in our judgments, right? I mean, how many of you guys can look at your life and go, man, every judgment I've made about any situation, every time that I've had to go and, and uh, uh, punish my kids for doing something wrong, I have been totally and completely even-handed. I have not exaggerated. I have not overreacted a single bit. Like I, you, you don't have to go beyond 24 hours for me. I mean, I can't do a single thing even-handed, really. And for that reason, Paul tells us in Romans 12, 19, not to repay. As humans, we are not to repay evil with evil, but we're we're to leave vengeance for God. Why? Because God's judgments are right every single time. He's always even-handed and he knows all the information. We're typically okay with Jesus making these right judgments until, right up until we begin to talk about who it's right for Jesus to punish and what punishment is right for them. Are you with me? We're usually okay with talking about Jesus making these judgments until we start talking about what Jesus, who Jesus says he's going to punish and how he's going to punish them. And then suddenly we find it objecting. Jesus says his vengeance is for those who do not know God. That's who will experience his vengeance. That's what this passage says. Those who do not know God will experience his vengeance. And what I mean by do not know God or what this passage means is those not in a close and positive relation with him. 
those who do not obey or believe the gospel, 2 Thessalonians says, Paul says here, those are the ones who will experience Christ's vengeance when he returns. Romans 1 shines some more light on that. I'll read it really quickly. Romans 1 says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God, he's revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, here's the, here's the important part, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. Jesus is saying, or what Paul is saying is when Christ returns, those who should have known God because he's revealed himself to them clearly and plain, uh, plainly, those who have rejected the gospel, which is the power of salvation, those are the ones who will experience Christ's vengeance. Because the ultimate sin is a rejection of their creator and their savior. The punishment for those who reject the king, Jesus, is expulsion from his kingdom and his presence, it says. They will suffer eternal destruction away from his presence, out of relationship with him. They have refused relationship with God on earth and they will get that same thing for eternity. No relationship with God. What they've wanted in their life is what God gives them for eternity. In the same way, those who do know him, who have been afflicted for his sake, who have suffered for obeying the gospel, they will be granted relief when Jesus returns. And oh, what a relief it is that Jesus would be glorified in us, friends. Do you read that? That he would be, that Jesus would be glorified in us. How amazing is that? And that we would see him clearly, that we would see the one who satisfies everything clearly and be with him and marvel at the magnificence of his glory when he returns. These Thessalonians will be counted among those who are saved with him for one reason, because they believe the gospel. Not because they're so great, not because of anything that they did, because of what Christ has done for them. Listen, this passage, it places eternal punishment in direct comparison with eternal reward in heaven. And it's tempting for us to downplay the eternal punishment that is described here because it's unsettling to us. But I want to warn you against that. I want to warn you against that because when we begin to say, oh, the eternal destruction here is not so eternal as what it actually says. What we're saying then also is that the eternal life in Christ is not so eternal as it says it is either. Paul puts these things right. They're two, they're par, they're two parallel lines. 
If God will right wrongs and grant relief to the afflicted, then is the gospel is the gospel about freeing the oppressed? Is it about freeing those who have been afflicted? Is that what the gospel is all about? And I, that's a question I think that we have to answer. That's a question that I think a lot of people in the church are wrestling with. And I wanna talk about it just for a second because I think there's a good impulse here that when we bring justice to a situation that we see and experience in our life, when we free people who are wrongfully oppressed, when we get rid of earthly kingdoms, if you will, that are unjust and oppressive, that we give people a taste of God's kingdom, we give people a taste of what Christ will do in their life if they choose to believe the gospel. We give them a hint of what God will ultimately do for his people one day. But listen, what we're doing is just a taste. It's not the whole thing. To say that this temporary and earthly work is the gospel is to fall way short of the wonderful work of God. It misses what causes the oppression that we see in our world in the first place. And here's why. Even if you could bring justice, even for a second, between people, all of us without Christ continue to be oppressed by our own sin that wars inside of us and makes us slaves. Even as believers who are freed by Christ, we continue to choose to go back to the sin and put the shackles back on. And so the result is none of us are actually just. That when we try to bring justice, as good as that effort is, that we never actually quite get it right. And what happens very quickly, and you can see this if you study history for even a minute, is that those who used to be oppressed soon become the oppressors. They justify their new sins by referring to old sins done to them or to others like them. And the cycle of sin and oppression continues to spiral with a new oppressor. Listen, oppressive systems exist in our world. And we need to recognize that as Christians. And we need to identify that. And those systems can support and perpetuate sin in our lives or in the lives of other people. But sin does not originate there. The Bible is clear. Sin originates in your heart. You are sinful. That's what the Bible says. I am sinful. And those systems exist first and foremost because I am sinful and selfish. And so when you get a bunch of sinful and selfish people together, what happens? They create a way of doing things that benefits them rather than other people. And so when we make the gospel just purely about freeing the oppressed, what happens is we never actually get freed from what is oppressing us. Every person is born under the oppression of sin, the Bible says, and every person perpetuates that oppression in some way, except for one person. One person did not, and that's Jesus. One person lived a perfect life, and that's Jesus. The only person to do it right by every other person. The only person to be just and fair 
and even handed in every way in their life was Jesus Christ. And yet he was oppressed and unjustly treated and brought to death for crimes he didn't commit for our sin. But praise God that God raised him from the dead, that God freed him from earthly oppression, that God freed him from the oppression of our sin, that God freed him from the oppression of death itself. Do you understand? When we repent, we submit to King Jesus and put our faith in the gospel, we become part of that kingdom, that kingdom that is the only kingdom that truly frees those who are oppressed and, he, and those who are afflicted and those who are persecuted. And, and, God, and God begins to free us through Christ and right, right now, right now in this life from the things that oppress us from sin and from addiction and from guilt and from shame. Friends, in the end, in the end, when Jesus returns, there's only two categories of people. It's not oppressed oppressor. It's not any other category that you can think of from this world. There's only two categories. Do you believe in Jesus Christ and his gospel or do you not? And that's it. Paul's desire is to shift our perspective for us to see the wonder of Christ and who he is, for us to be able to be grateful in our life right now because of who Jesus is and that he has done this thing for us, for us to shift our perspective and for us to have confidence in Christ that he will bring justice to, to whatever situation that we are in. And Paul's desire has been to encourage these suffering Christians And he's encouraged them by expressing these things and encouraged them by telling them the truth of the hope that they have in Christ. Now, Paul encourages them in these last few verses with a prayer by recording and writing a prayer that he is praying for them. And Paul shifts their perspective yet again. Paul prays for them for what he desires to happen to these suffering Christians. And you might expect for him to pray here for their suffering to go away, but that is not what Paul prays. It's another perspective shifter. In fact, he says, he says, uh, later on, he says, I'm writing this with my own hand, with my own hand. So they can see this is Paul's handwriting, right? It's hand delivered. Every word Every word that Paul gives in this letter matters. It's not just like an email that you're sending. It's not like Amazon sending a, a memo to all their employees and later on saying like, oh no, that memo didn't matter. No, like, like, like every word is significant because Paul has to actually write it and he has to give it to a person and they have to hand deliver that letter. Every word matters. And the most important prayer that Paul could write, the one he finds vital enough to record, has nothing to do with their suffering in the moment, it has everything to do with what God is, what God does in and through them in that moment. You see, the shift that he's making is this, the goal, the goal is godliness, not earthly gain. We've got to shift our perspective. 
from earthly gain to godliness. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for every good uh, and every work of faith by his power. The goal that Paul desires for these Christians in the midst of their suffering is that they would be more and more like Christ and they would live more and more like Christ. That's the most important thing. He reminds them in the first letter, in chapter four, verse three, I believe, he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification or your becoming more like Christ. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 8, he says, godliness is of value in every way, in every way as it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. Becoming like Christ has lasting benefits now to eternity. And this is a work that we cannot produce in ourselves, but God has to produce in us. And so Paul prays that God would do it in them. Do you pray that way? I'm not saying it's bad to pray, God, would you, get, would you take away this pain that I'm experiencing? Would you take away this affliction? Would you take away this persecution? Would you change the situation? I'm not telling you it's wrong to pray that way. In fact, frankly, I'm just glad you're praying. But as, we, as our perspective changes, we pray more and more, God, would you change me to be more like you? in this situation because me being more like you is better for me than me getting out of this circumstance. Do you believe, friends, do you believe that your holiness is more important than your happiness? I want you to wrestle with this question for a second. Do you believe that your holiness is more important than your happiness? Paul believes that. Do you believe that God might know what's good for you more than you know what's good for you? Do you believe that God is writing a massive story throughout history and in your life and the tension and the pain and the obstacles are all part of the rising action that can make you into the person that God wants to make you into? Do you believe that? And someday, friends, do you believe that he will bring all of that to a grand conclusion and you will be glorified in him and in his presence? that you are part of a story where at the end of the story, you get to be with the story writer. How amazing is that? So that in the name of our Lord Jesus, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing truth. What an amazing truth that in some way, Jesus is glorified by you and me and we get to be glorified in him. Friends, we are part of his movie. We are part of his story. And we don't have to worry. Dad already has told us how it ends. Every movie and every book is a way for someone to tell a story. And the stories we love, they have tension and they have conflict and they have issues. And the characters, we watch them grow through those things. And in the end, what happens? The hero wins. Why do you think every story is shaped like that? Because the story is shaped like that. And the storytellers, the good ones, the ones in the the books that we read, the, the classics, 
They bring all of these little storylines in the, in the story. They bring all these strands together into one wonderful conclusion. And God is the greatest storyteller that's ever lived. And he is writing an amazing story in history. And he's writing an amazing story in your life. And you get to be a character in his story. You get to be part of it. And he's growing you through the tension of that story. He's growing you right now through the tension that you are experiencing in your life and through the pain and through the affliction and through the persecution. And he's weaving all of those stories together every single single one of us into one great story. And one day we will get to stand there together and Jesus wins. And we get to be with him. We get to be satisfied in him fully. Friends, I will tell you before Christ, my story was a tragedy. It was nothing short of a tragedy. And Christ came into my life and he walked me through that. And every, every single good thing that I have in my life today comes directly from Jesus Christ. Every single one. And if in the midst of this crazy world, in the midst of this crazy story, every good thing that I have could come from Jesus. How amazing will it be to be with him when that story ends? How amazing. So what's your perspective? Are you looking with thanksgiving for the storyteller's work in your life? I mean, just think, do you look at your life and do you just see the problems or are you looking with thanksgiving for how the storyteller is working even in the midst of the issues. What's your perspective? Are you willing to trust God's story writing ability? Or do you want to write it your own way? What's your perspective? Are you being changed by the story that you're in to look more and more like Jesus? Friends, the destination, it shapes the journey. the greatest story that there ever was. The critical moment, the climax of the whole story is Jesus Christ on the cross. It's Jesus Christ dying and rising from the dead. And every week when we come here, we, our, our effort, our desire is to retell that story over and over and over again. You might say, gosh, isn't it time for a different story? No. This story is that good. It's that good that once you get a taste of this story, you don't want any other story. And so we get a taste of that story physically right here in communion. So I want to take a minute. I want to pray and, and Ask God to remind us of the story that he's writing in our lives. And friends, if you're not a believer yet, first I'd ask you to not take communion. Communion is something that, God has inst that Christ instituted with his disciples, with those who are following him. So I'd ask you to refrain from taking communion this morning if you're not a believer yet. But here's what I'd ask you to do. Friends, I want you to be in that story. I want you to be, to know his story and to know the story writer. 
I want you to experience the hope that comes with knowing the end. Would you take this time and just consider what if this story is true? Believers, let's take communion together. Uh, on the night that Christ was with his disciples before he died, he took the bread and he said to them, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember Christ this morning. And then he took the cup. He said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for writing this beautiful, amazing story. And I admit that I am often distracted by all the things of this world and I often get wrapped up in finding my satisfaction and my joy and in the things that I have or in the things that I'm doing or in the things that others are doing for me or, or, or whatever it is. That... Lord God, would you help us all to find our satisfaction and our joy in you. To find our confidence in you, to find our, our thankfulness in you and what you've done for us, to find everything in you because there is nothing better. We thank you and we pray all this in your name. Amen.